Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. In this episode, we'll be discussing Ogilvy on Advertising, a 1983 book of advertising advice from award-winning industry veteran David Ogilvy, the namesake of the advertising agency Ogilvy. It includes advice about working in the advertising industry, developing ads, and appealing to consumers. So, David Molson, can you introduce yourselves? I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant and uh, digital advertising researcher. My name is Molson Hart. I'm an e-commerce entrepreneur, and I also have a litigation financing uh, tech company. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's start with the author. Who was David Ogilvy? So David Ogilvy was an English advertising legend. He was born in 1911 in Surrey. His father was from Argentina and a failed financial broker and classic scholar. He attended uh, public school in Oxford on scholarship and started as an apprentice to a chef, then a door-to-door stove salesman, which he was incredibly successful at apparently, and wrote a introduction to doing that sales process that was shared with an advertising agency, which landed him his first job in advertising. He then moved to New York and worked at Gallup, where he was doing ad research. He was then a British intelligence agent during uh, World War II in America. He apparently had a farm in Amish country, Pennsylvania, before then returning to New York and opening a ad agency, which ultimately became Ogilvy and Mather. So that was 1949. He led that to become an incredibly successful agency. He ultimately stepped down in 1975 as the chairman and continued to be creative head until 1983 when he retired, which was the same year that he wrote this book. So Ogilvy continues to exist to this day as a part of WPP, which is one of the largest advertising conglomerates in the world. It was actually acquired by WPP in 1989 for $864 million, which was the most paid for an ad agency up until that time. And some people refer to him as the father of advertising. So advertising, it's such a broad term that we use all the time, but what does it mean concretely for a business? What does it mean to advertise? I think that question is actually like a lot deeper than it it sounds. I'd really have to think about it, but it's like the first thing is you want to capture people's attention. If you don't have people's attention, then they're not going to listen to your pitch. And then after you capture people's attention, you need to as succinctly as possible, ideally in an entertaining, maybe humorous way, uh, you need to explain to your potential customer why your product, whatever it is, offers value, what problem it solves. And, you know, then hopefully if it's at a reasonable price, you can execute a sale. So in my mind, advertising primarily is a way of driving sales. Whether branding advertising is kind of like more long-term, not necessarily direct response. Whereas it's like what you, when you see like a Coca-Cola ad, something like that, the idea is you just want to associate happy moments with Coca-Cola Whereas the other type of advertising is direct response where you're watching an infomercial and the goal is to get you to purchase something that you probably have never heard of, not necessarily to build a brand as soon as possible. That was great, Molson. Just to follow up on that a little bit, I think that the real distinction with advertising and other kinds of sales is the fact that you are openly selling the product, you are paying someone in order to display that information for you. And I think that's kind of the dividing line between advertising and traditional sales is, you know, there's cold calling and there are other kinds of sales processes. And advertising is slightly distinct in that it is completely transparent. Everyone knows this is an ad. And two, that you're actually paying some third party to display that sales pitch to their customers. Both of you have significant experience in advertising. To provide some context for listeners as we discuss it further, What kind of advertising have both of you been involved in in the past? So I was a ad researcher for about a year and a half. I mostly ran surveys to assess the validity of advertising campaigns, mostly digital ads. And so uh, you used to see all those pop-ups that would say you could win $1,000 or you could win an iPad. That was mostly my company at the time. Uh, There are a number of competitors, but we had invented that type of advertising, which was that 
websites that were selling advertising would give away ads to us to run those surveys to prove that customers who visited their website and saw the ads had better brand perceptions than those who didn't. So you would sort of run a very simple survey that said, do you know, you know what comes to mind when you think of this sort of the standard brand funnel kind of metrics, and then look at a pool of people based on their cookies, you could see whether or not they were exposed to the ads or not. And so in theory, you've got a light group of people. And the only difference is the exposure to the advertising, maybe multiple exposures to the ads. And then you say, okay, has that positively or negatively impacted their awareness, thoughts towards the brand, et cetera. So that's my real deep knowledge is ad research, which I guess Ogilvy talks about quite a bit in the book as well. How about you, Molson? I think I have done every single type of advertising conceivable, ranging from like advertising on AdWords, Amazon, YouTube, to doing the consumer product equivalent of Dan Smith will teach you how to play the guitar. Do you guys know that app? No. Okay. Well, there's a very famous ad in New York City with this guy who's holding a guitar and it's just basically an eight and a half by 11 color photo of this dude named Dan Smith. And it just says, Dan Smith will teach you how to play guitar. And it just has his phone number and this guy named Dan Smith will teach you how to play guitar if you call it, apparently. It really is famous. I'm surprised. Short. You've never seen that ad? Yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I've done everything. Weird stuff at trade shows. Actually, maybe I haven't done direct mail, but just all sorts of different stuff. And it's been pretty interesting to do that because you can see what works and what doesn't work. And I actually, even though it was like pathetic and lame, I actually like put up posters and attempt to sell an early product that I launched. And I, I managed to learn like a tremendous amount from doing that. And I've done a little bit of direct mail, sending out thousands of chess camp brochures, hoping to get people to register. <laughs> so Ogilvy, he was a legend in the industry. And he was in particular somebody who had driven forward the idea of research-based advertising. What were the problems that his contemporaries had with research-based advertising? Why was that such a pioneering thing to be in favor of using research and data to do advertising? I think research had existed for a while. I don't know that Ogilvy necessarily pioneered it, but I think it he did have a relatively unique background of being a ad researcher who then became the head of an ad agency. I think that was relatively unique. And so research basically is just actually testing the advertising, running surveys, doing surveys prior to trying to create the advertising to understand the market. There's all kinds of different research you can do when trying to create the best ads. And I think that advertisers are often trying to be very creative. And so in in some ways, the the companies that are that are actually doing the advertising, they want performance. The people in ad agencies often feel like they are sort of a an artist who hasn't really gotten his chance or something along those lines. And they tend not to want to have the numbers guy tell them what it is that's going to be successful. They think they have some divine inspiration and they're able to sell something just based off of that. And sometimes that's true. I'm sure there are cases where the research is going to tell you it's not going to succeed and then it goes out into the market and it really does succeed. So I think that there is some level of balance that should be expected and there can be truly unique ideas that maybe research would never tell you to do. But if you're doing sort of traditional advertising campaigns, I think it makes a lot of sense to run some research and see which version is doing the best before you spend a bunch of money on actually running the ads or try and have some kind of direct response or some metric where you can really see the impact of the advertising then ramp up or ramp down based on the performance. So there's obviously a lot of A-B testing and things like that that goes on now with digital advertising that's way more advanced than what he was talking about. But he has some pretty interesting ideas about ways that you could do that even back in the probably 60s, 70s, 80s. So one interesting thing about that is that not all of his contemporaries, even in what we think about as a pretty modern time, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, were using research. So what were they doing if they weren't using research? What, what were they depending on to make their ads? Yeah, I think it's the the intuition of the copywriters. It's maybe gut feelings that people have had from history. It is talking to the company themselves and just maybe having the celebrity or something else do a pitch. There are all kinds of things that you could you could take and approach without having research, but I might be missing something too. So Kopech, is there some other aspect you're really hoping to convey here? No, I, I think you got into it. It's really that there seemed to be a divide in the industry at the time that he wrote the book between creatives and people who are more research-focused or even research-focused creatives. 
And some agencies were more heavily in the intuition and creativity camp. And some agencies were more in the data and A-B testing and doing as much as we can to ensure an ad will be successful before we make it camp. So how did this dude actually measure the efficacy of what he thought was his greatest ads? So I, th- I think there were there was a lot of data collection going on, including surveys, and part of it was just sales too. So we look at what are the amount of sales. We then survey people who had bought the product recently, ask them, did they see this ad? Did the ad have an influence on them specifically in changing their brand preferences? He said that was the most important piece of data to collect is how has an ad influenced somebody's brand preferences? Because if you just ask somebody, did you like this ad? That doesn't necessarily tell you whether or not that person is actually going to go buy your product. All right. That sounds like a lot of BS to me. So for example, if you take one of his most famous ads, you remember that like striped tartan ad with the one-eyed guy with the eye bash? Yes. So at the end of the ad, it says, this is how they like achieve a conversion. For store names, write CF Hathaway, Waterville, Maine. In New York, call OX7-5566. So the idea is that like one, so people, they really like the shirt. They decide to buy the shirt. Then they, they call some company. Then the company gives them a list of stores. And then the customer goes to the shore, store to purchase the shirt. It just seems like so enormous. And, and then like if you're selling shirts to a store, you don't have access to the sales data. Like you, you're only basis for knowing whether or not the ad is effective is maybe in three to six months, they'll like order more striped tartans. And it just seems like enormously difficult to really like figure out whether or not the advertising campaign was successful just by kind of being like, well, we ran an ad and three to six months later, we got another order. So it must've worked. Maybe people were just in the store and they're like, wow, that's a, that's a cool shirt. I like that shirt. And then when it comes to the surveys, it's like, you can't really like find a group of people who saw the ad. You pretty much just have to find like a random group of people who like do surveys for a living or something like that. And then you have to show them the ad and then be like, well, what's your brand preference now about Hathaway striped tartans? I mean, I thought a lot of the advice that was in the book was good, but every now and again, it just felt like he was dropping some BS on us. And I mean, like, why do you write this whole book other than to just sell his agency? So I think that's a decent point. I would say there is a lot of very tangible advertising research that he does talk about. Even with children, he actually talks about having kids circle which toy they would choose, then show them an ad, then have them circle the toy thing, having told them that we lost their results. So it kind of should not color their decisions. It's a little bit weird that they were running advertising testing on children at the time. That would probably be illegal now. But I think that He also gives a lot of like very tangible examples as well, like running different kinds of coupons with different phone numbers that are people people are calling from the newspaper ad and actually running that in 50 percent and then using that to drive it forward. So there's a lot of things that you can do to get very tangible results when you're doing true brand advertising. He does tend to just talk about how, oh, they were number five in the market when they hired me and then they were number one at the end. And that seems to be the the main way that he tends to, to focus on it there. And I think you're right that that is a little bit flowery, self-aggrandizing. He certainly is selling himself and his agency throughout the book. And I definitely did get a little bit of the just this is a sales pitch kind of feel, but he is an ad man. So it shouldn't be too super surprising that we see that from him. Well, have you guys ever done surveys before? Yes. Cool. So to me, my main takeaway from surveys is that people will just say anything and that you just like it's really difficult to actually get any value out of it. What was it like for you? I think it depends on how targeted a group you're surveying. So for example, at the end of the chess camps, we would give them surveys about their experience, about what we could improve on, what you know, what we could change in future years that would make them more likely to come back, things like that. And at the end of classes, we always give surveys to ask students what they think about the experience and their anonymous surveys so they can really be open and, and free with their answers. I think that targeted surveys are very effective in giving you data that helps you improve. I think it depends a lot on what you're trying to test. I, like I said, did digital advertising research for a while, and I am very skeptical of a lot of the value of that research. It just, 
who knows when you're especially responding to one of those random internet ads, like we did things to try and exclude people who weren't actually answering the questions. Are they clicking it too fast, et cetera? You can do things to try and improve the quality of your data. But I 100% agree that there are many things that surveys are terrible at answering. And I think people overly rely on them. Okay. Surveys suck. (laughs) I don't know. I, I don't have anything else to say. People will write anything. People are afraid, even when it's anonymous, to hurt your feelings, to to not go with the flow. I think that the most effective way to figure out whether or not people really like or dislike something is the best way is obviously, do they buy it or do they not buy it? And then maybe the second best way is to kind of like just observe them interacting with it without them knowing that you're there. A big thing that Ogilvy also talked about is that with advertising, you can only sell a bad product once. So if it's a bad product, people are not going to buy it again. So you can do all the surveys you want to make the best ad you can. But the most important thing is to actually have something people really want and will purchase again. It blew my mind in this book that he was like, yeah, we ran a survey on the product and everyone said it was bad. And I saved my customers so much money. And it's just like, because earlier in the book, he's like, you can't like, come up with a product by committee. You can't like do creativity by committee. And you know who else is obviously famous for just being like, yeah, I'm not going to look at surveys. Steve Jobs, right? And like if they had done like a survey on the iPhone, I'm sure it would have been like it's too expensive. This is unnecessary. Like, you know, a phone is fine and an iPod is fine. Why would we combine these things? Surveys, man. Useless in my book. They did have to drop the price on the iPhone, though, so maybe they would have gotten some useful information there. Yeah, I I don't know anything about pricing with the iPhone. Although Ogilvy disagrees. He says that surveys cannot tell you how you should price things and that basically you just have to test the market and see what happens. Right, because in economics, we know that people find signaling in prices. So actually, sometimes people will tell you, I want a lower price. But when you raise the price, that actually indicates to them, it signals to them higher quality. And they're actually more likely to buy your product when you raise the price than when you lower it in some instances. It depends on the product, right? So for gifts, it's like kind of good to go high price because you, you want the recipient of the gift to know how much money that you spent. This is like a, a dilemma I have with our toys because toys are so often gifted. With something that's like uh, like a medical product, something that you put in your body, high price, certain types of customers w- will not buy the low price versions. But then there's stuff like screws, you know, so long as the screw isn't going into something that's hanging over your head that could potentially kill you, you know, like the, the contractor who's building a house that he's not going to live in. He just wants the cheapest screws possible. So it, it, it all depends on what you're buying in my book. Ogilvy actually covers this a little bit as well. And he says that there can basically, in a commodity, only be two strategies. One is low price and the other is high quality. And so you can potentially be, I don't know who the best screw maker is. So no one has apparently succeeded or I'm not a construction worker or you know someone who uses screws frequently enough to know. But I would certainly be a buy cheap screws, although agreed if I was drilling something directly above my head, maybe I would think about it a little bit more. But that, that's essentially the approach you need to take with, with commodities is it's either you're the best and so it's worth some amount of premium or you are the cheapest. Okay, let's get into specific kinds of advertising. So Ogilvy has a chapter on print advertising. What are some of the most important elements of a print advertisement according to Ogilvy? So I know he talked about, about the headline being really important. He talks a lot about not using white text on a black background. So using sort of the traditional newsprint style, black text, white background. He tended to write very long copy with a lot of description. And so I don't think I've really seen ads that look anything like a lot of the ones that he posts in the book. So I found them very interesting and apparently they were very successful at the time. But I'm also very curious whether that continues to be true. I wonder if in our sort of fast-paced Twitter millennial culture, you just don't take the time to read a, you know, 3000 word ad or whatever it is that he he was selling. Doesn't it like kind of make sense that longer copy would be advantageous in terms of driving sales? Because the idea is like, okay, first you want to capture people's attention. And then after you have their attention captured, if some sort of bell goes off in their mind where they're like, okay, this is something that I potentially want to buy. Don't you really just want to list out all the benefits? 
and you know, at any time, if they're like, well, I'm not interested in this, they, then that the rest of the copy is not useful. But if, you know, they, they really are seriously interested, they can read all the way through it. It kind of makes sense to me. And then for me, that point was kind of crystallized as I watched TV in the wake of reading this book, like half the ads, like I just have, that I watch on television. I don't really even know what they're for. Um, and kind of in a way it's because there's like insufficient explanation and it feels like advertisers are just like more focused on grabbing my attention and maybe like doing some sort of lame attempt at like making me laugh as opposed to like trying to sell me on something. Yeah, Ogilvy says on page 84 that all my experience says that for a great many products, long copy sells more than short. I have failed only twice with long copy, once for a popular priced cigar and once for a premium priced whiskey. So it's interesting that he points out those two specific types of products that long copy didn't work for. And I think that there's a different, he mentions in another part of the book that there is a segmentation by type of customer that might indicate to you whether you should use short copy or long copy. For example, people who can't read, you don't want to give them long copy. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to come back to my point, though. I don't know the last time I ever read a long ad. I might read a blog post from someone who is an expert in something and through that be kind of sold on their expertise and maybe I would hire them for something in the future. I could see reading something that conveys expertise, which is a lot of the ads he actually did for Ogilvy was he would have these sort of bullet points and they would go into a lot of detail on different kinds of research they could do, different levels of expertise that they had. And again, I could see that as being compelling, but I don't really remember ever reading a really long ad along those lines. I don't know. I I guess if I were really into cars or something like that, I I could see maybe that that pulling me in. But unless it's something that you're really passionate about, you're not going to read it. But I guess that's kind of the point is that most people aren't going to read your ad. So you just want to be really compelling for that small percentage that do. And a whole lot of information is one way to try and achieve that, again, depending on the audience you're going after. Question for you, Kopech. You said that in the book, he said that he only failed twice with long copy, right? That is correct. Yes. Okay, but then like later in the book, he, he's like, oh, yeah, you can't do an ad with chefs, right? <laughs> and if you look at this ad that he did with chefs in the Rinso, like I swear, it's a long ad. Like there are like five paragraphs about Rinso, and he says that that ad failed. Um, so I, I don't know what this dude is talking about. He is very clear that long copy is, has been very effective for him. He says, for example, direct response, this is from page 88, Direct response advertisers know that short copy doesn't sell. In split run tests, long copy invariably outsells short copy. I think one part of it is the ethos. So some people, and I think a lot of the general public, sees advertisers as people who are trying to lie to people to convince them to buy something they don't really need. David Ogilvy and some of the other industry greats that he talks about in the book see themselves as fact tellers giving people as much information as possible so that they can make as good a purchasing decision as possible. So if you come from that ethos, then your inclination is to give people as many facts as possible so that they can make as informed a decision as possible when they buy a product. And the only way to give people a lot of facts is to write a lot of information. So he also mentions, and we'll get into television a little bit later, that he thinks longer commercials are better than shorter commercials simply because you can convey more information about the product. So if you think about your headline as something that needs to grab somebody's attention and the picture kind of serves the same purpose, the illustration, then the copy is after you already have somebody's attention, how do you give them as much information as possible so that they can actually make an informed purchasing decision? You know what else is another thing that really supports long copy? The time of basically his era, right? Because if you see an advertisement for something that you potentially want to buy, and I'll tie back to your point, the point you just made uh, in a second. Like it's 1972. Like you want to learn more about that product. What are you going to do? Like go, you can't Google it, right? You can't, there's no good way to learn any more information about the thing that's being advertised to you besides going to a store. So maybe in like a, in a world where Google doesn't exist, it really does make sense to just like jam the thing up with information. Now, in terms of like longer advertisements, uh, I'm not sure what's more effective, but I do get the vibe that longer advertisements are probably more effective than shorter advertisements. You know, it's better to run one long advertisement than four quarter of the length advertisements. 
And the, the reason why I get that vibe is because that's what direct response television people do. Like Billy Mays, like he runs long advertisements. Infomercials are long. And you know that those ads are effective because those guys can't make any money unless the ads are effective. Whereas Coca-Cola could really do whatever the heck it wants. And, you know, no one's measuring whether or not that, that advertisement is driving sales because like, oh, we're just building the brand with this polar bear drinking Coca-Cola. Whereas the direct response guys, like if Billy Mays isn't like selling that flex seal or whatever, that ad is done and is done fast. Well, I think you made a great point. And that's where really where this book being a little bit older breaks down. Digital advertising is all about clicks, right? You need to get somebody to click and then you can give them more information on your website about all the details. So that's very different from the world of print advertising, where there's no interaction somebody can make with the page to give them more information. So I think if you have a block of text on a Facebook ad, you're not really going to get a lot of clicks that way. But if you have something really enticing and maybe even a little bit shocking or whatever, um, you're more likely to entice somebody to click. And that is totally apart from the world that David Ogilvy was living in. Okay, what are some other aspects of print advertising that David Ogilvy believes are important? If I could just go back to your original question, sorry. I think that there's still, whether it's David Ogilvy's world or today's world, it's still all about like drawing your viewers in potentially with something controversial. But I think where today's advertising world is just totally different from David Ogilvy's world is that you can just measure everything like extremely well. Like you don't have to have someone call to ask where the stores are, you know, like they can just click a button and you know whether or not that button led to a conversion. Well, there's a lot more direct response work that you can do. That's certainly true, but there's still a lot of brand building advertising that's going on. And I think there is a lot of research that is telling them that that was worth it. I'm sure that they are, you know, testing, not running ads in certain markets and seeing how that drives sales. I'm sure they are doing all kinds of different methods of ascertaining whether Coke really needs to be spending whatever. I'm sure it's a billion dollars or whatever they are in their advertising, and it is showing them that it's working. Right. So you could think about modern digital advertising, as Molson says, uh, with its immediate response and information about whether or not an ad is working as the ultimate end point of this data-driven approach that Ogilvy is promoting. So he was ahead of his time in many ways, you might say, in being so data-driven because technology would eventually enable that to totally dictate your advertising direction. What does Ogilvy say about headlines? Because headlines are relevant even today in digital ads. We, we still need to have a, a story that brings somebody in. I know he said that five times as many people read the headline as read the body copy. And so your headline should sell your product or you've wasted 90% of your money. Common sense. Agree totally. I think it's kind of cool in, in a way too. It's like, it's fun to come up with that, like as to be a copywriter and come up with that, like really cool. It's got to feel cool. It's got to draw people in. Obviously it's got to work. And then just to come up with that headline in your print ad or, or whatever, whether it's the beginning of your YouTube video, when you ask some sort of like bizarre question and then direct people to the part of whatever you're showing them that is meant to sell them. A few important points he mentions about headlines. One is that headlines that have a benefit about the product are some of the best headlines. An alternative, though, is headlines that deliver news about the product. So headlines that here's a new use for this product that you might not have known about, or here's this new feature that we're going to be coming out with with this product, or here's a new version that's coming out. Something that people didn't know before they saw the advertisement is a pretty effective way to write a headline. He also says that another thing you should consider is having helpful information. So headlines that might tell you something that could help you in your daily life or help you with some event that you have coming up or explain how a product could be helpful to you with some problem that you have. And he also says it's important to include the brand name. So you want to mention if this is an ad about Via Heart Toys, you should mention Via Heart in the, in the headline. Now, I think that's going to differ a lot based on what kind of product it is you're selling. But that's, that's a general thing is that you want to have as much brand awareness as possible. Um, and one of the last things he says is that if you have a very targeted headline, so it's a product that maybe is just going to a small group of people, you want to actually mention that small group of people perhaps in the headline so that they know that, hey, this is for you. This, this is something you should be reading. This is a, an ad you should check out. Uh, it's, it's specifically for you. 
basically all just like really logical common sense stuff. Yeah. And then he goes into a lot more specifics like that putting things in quotes makes them 28%, according to his research, more likely to be read and recalled that shorter headlines sometimes seem to test better than longer headlines. Mentioning the name of a city where people might be reading the headline can be an effective technique to to draw people in. So there's a lot of little details that he gets into as well, probably beyond the scope of our of our episode. This one weird trick is helping local moms near you write better advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did find that to be interesting in terms of who would I recommend this to, which I, you always ask at the end. I do think there was just a plethora of little tricks that you can try in advertising that I don't know that they would necessarily work every time with everything you're selling, but having this just very long list of things to to turn back to that have worked in the past, I think would be hugely helpful if I were trying to write my own ads. I, I agree with you, David. And I also, I don't know about you guys. Did you guys just like love the feel of the book? Isn't the book just like so cool? You know, sometimes picture books or books that have too many pictures get a bad rap, but this is an advertising book. Of course, it should be full of pictures and full of demonstration of the techniques that he's explaining. So I love that it's kind of flows with the ads. You see all he talks about the concept and then he has real world examples of how the concept has has worked. So, yeah, I actually actually love the flow of the book. I actually only had the digital edition and I would definitely not recommend that. They sometimes had high res versions that you could go in and read, but a lot of times you really couldn't make out the ad because of the the quality in the digital copy. So uh, definitely buy the physical book. Okay, one last element of print advertising I want to get into is illustrations. What does Ogilvy say about how an illustration should be crafted? And why don't we throw into this layout as well? So I know he talked about how you can use illustrations when there's some feature that can't actually be photographed. I think in general, he tended to prefer photographs and then to use illustrations for more kind of explanatory things that couldn't be conveyed through through actual photos. I remember him arguing in the book that there was like kind of a perfect way to set everything up. And I mean, it kind of makes sense in a way. I thought that was cool. Yeah, always with a big picture at the top and then like almost three columns of text at the bottom. But I don't know. I'm really excited, actually, for us to post our ads on Twitter. I think it'll be really fun. For the listeners, uh, we all made uh, ads for this podcast, kind of like following his principles, except for David Short, who didn't make one yet. And we're going to post them on Twitter and see uh, which ones get the best uh, responses. So a couple of things he says about layout are that using too unorthodox a layout can actually detract from your ad. So like you said, Molson, he has a very standard layout that he says most ads should follow, which include a big headline, a fairly large picture, and then a lot of copy on the bottom. But sometimes people try to reshape that copy. Sometimes people try to move the headline to the bottom of the page. He's basically against anything that hurts legibility, whether that be arranging the text in a strange way, whether that be using, as David mentioned earlier, white text on a black background. He even goes into fonts and typography and mentions that we're used to reading longer form copy in serif fonts. So when you do your copy on your advertisement, you should use a serif font as well instead of a sans serif font. I'll say I think that's really fallen out of favor. I very rarely see serif fonts in advertisements today. I almost always see sans serif, but he was really a fan of serif uh, because it's more readable. I think the typography has evolved too a little bit since the 1980s. There's now these uh, humanist serif, excuse me, sans serif typefaces that try to add some of the legibility of a serif typeface to a sans serif typeface. Can you explain to me what the difference is? Is Times New Roman, a serif font, and is like Arial, a sans serif? Like, what's a serif? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. So serifs are those little bits of flourish that you see on the end of letters. So instead of having just straight lines, maybe on the very end of the A, you let's say on, let's think about capital letter A in English. On a capital letter A in English, you could draw it as just a triangle with a line in the middle and, and no bottom on the triangle. But you could also draw it as that same thing and putting two little legs on the bottom of both of the cor- bottom left and bottom right corners of the capital A. And so if you have those little legs, you're adding a little flourish that's not strictly necessary to convey what the letter is, but actually when you're reading a lot of text, makes it more readable. 
And so that's why in long form, like in a book you buy in the store, usually it's laid out in a, in a serif font. But today they found ways to modify sans serif fonts to make them more legible for long copy. And sans serif has certainly become the standard in computing over the last, let's say, 10 years or so. It'd be really weird to see like an Apple ad that was all in Times New Roman. <laughs> and you would never see that, right? Because Apple is a snob about typography and they put a lot of time into making their typography distinctive and representative of their brand, right? And Times New Roman is just a generic font. Yeah, this is a complete aside, but I remember reading in, uh, I think it was the Isaacson Steve Jobs book about how Steve had studied calligraphy. And so he insisted on having this huge variety of fonts in the original Macintosh. And that that was almost like a fundamental requirement for the UI UX capabilities of the computer to be able to handle that. You couldn't have sort of the traditional interface kind of terminal that they had seen before. Yeah, that's a great story. I tell it to students at college and they're asking me like, what electives should they take? I always say that you should take anything you're interested in because you never know how that interest might come back to help you. When Steve Jobs was at Reed College, which he dropped out of after like two semesters or something like that, he still audited classes for another semester. And one of the classes he took was a calligraphy class. And that, this is in the early 1970s, right? Then when he founds Apple in the mid-1970s, he still has this interest in typography and calligraphy. It's a while till they do the Macintosh, but the early Apple computers, the Apple I, the Apple II, didn't really have what today we think about as bitmap font capabilities. When they were doing the Macintosh in the, mid, in the early 80s, came out in 1984, right? That was revolutionary. There weren't computers, especially computers that cost less than you know, $5,000 that had the ability to show all kinds of different fonts with different kernings, with different ligatures, with different styling live on the screen. You would typeset something in your plain font on your computer, and then your printer would print it out with the ligature and the kerning and the different types of fonts. Uh, but to actually see it live on the screen, that was revolutionary. And Steve Jobs says if he hadn't taken that calligraphy class at Reed College, that all would have never happened. And so who knows how long we would have gone. Maybe we would have been into the 1990s before we had really advanced font capabilities on our personal computers. If you asked your students to take a course that they were interested in, and I feel like this is now not going to make the episode, <laughs> and they actually did it, what would they take? Like, uh, does your college offer like video games courses? Because I feel like the vast majority would just do that. Well, yeah, we do. We, we uh, Actually, it's what we're known for. We, we have some of the best video game programs in the country, actually rated by a lot of publications that way. So yeah, they, some of them do that, but those are very involved. So if you're a computer science major, a lot of them do a game programming minor, but I'm talking about just like pure electives. So electives where maybe it's totally unrelated to your academic interests. So one thing that I've seen students do the last couple of years is music production. Um, we have some pretty good sonic arts classes, and there's been some students who've gotten a huge amount of value out of that out of taking some music production classes. But then what's kind of sad is sometimes I say that to students and they're so narrowly focused that they just take another computer science class. Like they have this total class of freedom and it's great. Maybe that just means that's what they're really passionate about and that's cool too. But sometimes there's students who they, they take one that they're not even like that interested in, but they just like feel like they don't want to put themselves out of their comfort zone. And I'm always encouraging them to try something new, try something different because you never know how the stars will align later on and come back to, to your career. But um, yeah, they, they can be pretty boring and be like, oh, I'll just take an introductory uh, CS <laughs> class to boost my GPA as my elective. Yeah, I remember in college. Happens a lot. I took a class in ecological agriculture, which was honestly a lot of fun. Got to do some organic farming and get a lab credit for it. I uh, didn't go to class at all in college. So uh, that was uh, squandered four years. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have a lot of regrets too, only going to 50% of my classes or so. But uh, I took some classes that are relevant to our podcast. I mean, I took some classes on on China. I took a bunch of classes on that. And we, we've talked a lot about China in terms of business on the podcast. So I'd say that was something that kind of weaved back into my life and I didn't know how it would necessarily. And I took some classes on religion that just, you know, I turned out, I didn't know at the time, but I just was kind of trying different things turned out to be interesting to me a lot personally later on. So I think everyone, when you're in college, I mean, when again in your life are you going to have the chance to really, from an expert, learn a subject that's not related to your career? 
I, I think you should stretch yourself and, and do something a little different. When I was first starting the toy business, I wanted to learn Chinese so I could communicate with my suppliers. And uh, despite not having been to really any classes for four years in college, I, uh, I like found a local state university with SUNY Purchase that was offering tiny Chinese classes. And since my business wasn't making any money, I would just sneak into the classes. And so I got like through like four or five classes and eventually the Chinese teacher like I had a book and everything and I kind of looked like a student. She was like, look, like I really appreciate that you seem to be the only person in this class who actually wants to learn Chinese, but like you can't just come here and not pay for the classes. And uh, yeah, so they kicked me out of the class. That's cool though. I admire that you did that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was fun. Good times. I took one term of Mandarin at Dartmouth and it was during my pledge term. So it did not work out very well. and I did not continue with those studies, but I do regret that. Okay, so let's move on to television commercials. So Ogilvy says he's not as much of an expert on television as he is on print, but he does have certain principles that he has seen work well in television. What are those principles? Yeah, so he lists a bunch of different things that succeed and don't succeed in TV ads. So the ones that he says are above average are humor Slice of Life, which is sort of two people arguing and convincing each other, testimonials, demonstrations, problem and solution, talking heads, characters, reason why, news, and emotion. And then the things that he says are below average that don't perform as well were testimonials by celebrities, cartoons, although they do sell to children, and musical vignettes. So I found this interesting. As you kind of read through it, you really do get the feeling of like, oh, yeah, that's that ad. I've seen that a million times. And then some of it also felt a little bit, again, dated of, oh, I don't think people really sell things exactly in that way anymore. But I wonder if it would, you know, come back around and work again. He was probably like, hey, that musical vignette, did that change your brand preference? (laughs) Sorry, man. I just I can't get over this. How do you measure that? It's so difficult. Well, he said they would do tests. So you would take a group of people, kind of like a focus group, show them an ad and ask them then for their impressions of the ad. But they don't even want to buy the product, right? Because it's just like a random survey group. It's like you're showing you're showing like a like the hundred people who don't want to buy a car right now, car advertisements. And you're like, do you want to buy this car? (laughs) It's just like, you know, I'm just here to get paid for the survey, but uh, I'm going to say no, because, you know, uh, that's what I feel like saying right now. Just to defend ad research a little bit, you can actually recruit interested parties. So that actually becomes more difficult, right? When you need to recruit a thousand people who are small business owners, for instance, that was actually the hardest kind of ad research I ever had to do. And we had to spend a lot of money because small business owners do not really care about running these ads. And so we had to give them like $100 each versus normally you could pay 2 or $3 or whatever to get ad res- uh, responses to these surveys. Whenever you get those things, you're always like, all right, how many questions do I need to click through to get my $100 Amazon gift card? And you, you don't get the $100 gift card if you click through too quickly. Again, it just depends, right? People can do a good or bad job at this stuff, but it is possible to try and time it. You see, oh, the average person takes 10 minutes to complete this. This person completed it in four and a half minutes. So we're going to exclude that and we're not going to give them the $100 or whatever. Maybe we do give them the $100, but we just know we need to recruit another person. He, he goes into a, then a bunch of tips about how to make these advertisements. Some of the tips are that you should always identify the brand. You should always show the package that's associated with the product. If it's a food product, this is kind of obvious, but you want to make it as appetizing as possible. Don't just show the raw ingredient. Show the great things you could make with the raw ingredient. I think there he actually pushed food in motion, mm-hmm. um, which... I forget where I saw this, but it was some kind of documentary or something. But there's like these crazy machines they use to throw like Cheerios or whatever. And it just makes these crazy like ellipses and whatever. And they they really do apparently give that, I don't know, somehow more convincing aspect of the deliciousness of the food when it's floating through the air. Yeah. Mnemonics, he's big on. He says sound effects work well, but not music. So not music is just, he says, tests neither positive nor negative for most commercials. Whereas sound effects, like he cites specifically Folgers, where they would show the coffee pouring into the cup, that that sound just evokes emotion in people. And sound effects can be a lot more effective than music. 
And then he says, basically, there's a bunch of them, these tips where he says, you know, just don't be boring. Like, keep the viewer's attention. Don't just show scenes that are just everyday kind of scenes or the same sort of scene you might see in another advertisement. Show scenes that really grab the person's attention that short amount of time that you have their eyeballs. Yeah. The other thing that he said was the great scandal that apparently commercials cost $2,000 per second compared to $4 per second for television, which I'm sure those numbers are completely different now, but I imagine they're still somewhat in the same ballpark that people just blow crazy money on these ads. And it, he says it's a big part of why most ad agencies either lose money or you know have a less than 1% margin. Yeah. And he's not a big fan. You mentioned before celebrities. He's not a big fan of overly paying for actors. He says that that doesn't add that much value. And I think that goes back to his whole thing about always making the facts about the product really be the star is anything that detracts from the product itself is not necessarily worth the cost. Do you guys think that's true though? Well, I think the example he gives is crazy, which I don't know if it was him, but that someone paid Eleanor Roosevelt a bunch of money to sell margarine and that just everyone hated that because it's like if you like Eleanor Roosevelt, then you think she's completely betraying herself. And if you don't like Eleanor Roosevelt, then you really don't want to buy the margarine that she likes. So I just thought that story was funny. Yeah, it was him. And he paid her $35,000, which I would have thought she had enough money that she didn't need $35,000 to advertise some margarine. So I kind of agree with her detractors who were like, why would you go advertising margarine. I mean, maybe she did it for a good cause. Who knows? Maybe she took the money and donated it to charity. Uh, who knows? But yeah, it does seem a little bit beneath a former first lady to advertise margarine. Like I can't imagine uh, Michelle Obama or Laura Bush advertising margarine. I could kind of see Laura Bush doing it. I don't know what Michelle would do. I could see Laura Bush doing it. I can't. <laughs> Didn't George Bush have a heart attack? So that kind of makes sense. Not in like a negative way. I think she just probably really likes. I can't believe it's not butter. It would just be down to sell it. All right, we'll have we'll have our uh, fact checking assistant uh, fact checking assistant check that after the show. Thanks. No, that's Dick Cheney. George Bush never had a heart attack. He, he's extremely physically fit. He used to do like runs, and then after his heart rate would be like in the forties. Like he, I think he did have to get a stent, but I don't know if he actually had a heart attack. So let's move on from television advertisements. Uh, what are some mistakes in advertising generally that people make? So not specific just to print or television, but general mistakes that Ogilvy points out. People not understanding what your advertisement is for is a huge one. And I, I learned that the hard way when I was selling products, putting paper ads on telephone poles. People had no idea what the ad was for. Um, another way to really botch your advertising is, is to not tell people how they can get it. Those are two huge things that really inhibit, inhibit success. Yeah. He also had some mistakes he talked about in terms of hiring, which were, this is a quote, never hire your friends. I have made this mistake three times and had to fire all three. They are no longer my friends. Never hire your client's children. If you have to fire them, you may lose the client. This is another mistake I have made. Never hire your own children or the children of your partners. However able they may be, ambitious people won't stay in outfits with which practice nepotism. This is one mistake I did not make. My son is in the real estate business. Okay. So Ogilvy has a sentence in the book that he says, this is the most important sentence. Here's what it is. On page 160, he says, advertising which promises no benefit to the consumer does not sell. Yet the majority of campaigns contain no promise whatever. I think he meant to write whatsoever, which is funny that he made a mistake in what he says is the most important sentence in the book. But anyway, what does he mean when he says uh, advertising which promises no benefits to the consumer does not sell? What's a promise to the consumer? I think he's basically getting at what Molson was talking about earlier to some extent, which is that there's a lot of this like generic brand building stuff that doesn't actually say... I'm going to solve this problem for you. I'm going to deliver some value to you. Instead, it's just kind of cushy and nice and whatever, showing polar bears. Uh, you know, even though I was knocking it before, just because you can't measure, in most cases, the efficacy of brand advertising doesn't mean it doesn't work. And, you know, with the billions of dollars that are spent on brand advertising and most brand advertising does not at least directly make a promise in terms of what value it will deliver to the customer if they make a purchase. If that much money is being spent, then it probably has some sort of efficacy one way or another. Okay. Towards the end of the book, Ogilvy mentions the six greats of advertising. 
Did any of those profiles make an impression on you or was that section just kind of something you skimmed over? Yeah, I skipped it. Um, I, I found it interesting, actually. I didn't know some of these guys and then some of them I did, but the six greats that he mentions are Lasker, Ressor, Rubicam, Burnett, Hopkins, and Burnback. The things that I really remember were that Lasker was just like really rich and had some ridiculous estate in outside Chicago where he had like a golf course and six miles of hedges where Ogilvy also casually drops that he has one mile of hedges at his estate in France. And then that he, that same guy, I think could have been a billionaire if he hadn't sold his family's land in Texas, which ultimately became oil country and like downtown Houston. So that, that, that story was just kind of funny. I remember Rubicam, it seemed like had really been Ogilvy's mentor. And so he had grown up at, at JWT and then founded Young and Rubicam and had sort of, you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And I think they'd said that they, they literally founded this firm on a shoestring. So they had $5,000 and a shoestring account. And that was how they started Young and Rubicam, which at the, the time of the book was like the largest advertising agency of the world. And then the Leo Burnett story was was funny too. He was sort of not the typical Don Draper ad man. He was kind of overweight and bald and had glasses. And he said he didn't hit his stride until he was 60, but that he ultimately created the, the biggest agency outside of New York between the ages of 60 and 80. And um, that he was really big on, you can't write ain't into your copy uh, or hereabouts, you can write ain't to your copy that people in New York are too, you know, snooty or whatever, but that he was going to treat people like they really are. Um, and just like a super hard worker that he worked like 364 days a year. I don't remember Hopkins, but the the Burnback guy, uh, I believe, was one of the founders of DDB. And that one felt a little bit more just like this was a guy I was competitive with. And I think he would probably died fairly recently then. And so, it, I don't know, it just kind of jumped out as not really like measuring up to some of these other guys who seem to have been, you know, incredibly influential in some of which I'd heard of. But I found it kind of fun. I don't know, in terms of if you're looking for sections to skip, I think this is much less relevant in terms of learning about the importance of advertising. But I, I found it just kind of fun to hear the history and, you know, the little mini bios of these guys. I saw one review of this book that said, this shows that Ogilvy's a good advertiser because he really sells these people. The way that he describes them, the way that he writes the little mini biographies of each of them is very skillful and really gives you a picture of what these people are like in a very short amount of space, which in and of itself shows, wow, Ogilvy must be a good copywriter. I'd say what came away from for me from these mini biographies is that dichotomy again between the creatives and the data focused, uh, that there were some people in there who ran their agency based on their own intuition. And there were some people in there who really relied on strong client relationships, strong data, strong research, to run their agencies. So I think that uh, it epitomizes this whole struggle between creativity and research that the advertising industry continues probably, I would assume to this day, to um, be divided between. Yeah, that's a good point. That was definitely um, conveyed there as well. The Well, one, I think they were, they were all Americans and, they, oh, there was a big split between them going to college or not. And some of them had real, real strong opinions there as well. But yeah, ag agreed. I think, it, I think it showed him at his best in terms of actually writing within the book. It was just sort of well-written, interesting. He told stories about them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, coming to the end of the book, Ogilvy at the end talks about some things he doesn't like about the advertising industry. What are some of those things? And he also makes some predictions about the future of advertising. Did any of those predictions resonate with you? Did any of them come true? So with the problems with advertising, he seems to be mostly just kind of setting up a straw man and, and breaking it down in this, I felt like, that it was sort of a, you know, the printing press isn't evil. It can be used to print evil things. It can be reused to print the Bible. He kind of takes umbrage at the claims that advertising is evil. And I think, again, that's probably where that that quote I talked about earlier is that you can, you, you can sell something bad only once with an ad and then, you know, your customers are smart. They're going to figure it out. And he goes a lot into detail about how there are all these different regulatory agencies that are evaluating the quality of advertising, but that there's nothing that's doing that for political ads and that those are the biggest liars of them all. So that part was very interesting just in the current political climate that we're in with, you know, Facebook, 
and Twitter taking sort of polarizing stances on Facebook, just saying, hey, it's not our job to police what's true and we're going to let politicians publish what they want. And Twitter saying, you know, we're just not going to let politicians advertise at all. And I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. But it was definitely kind of cool to see people were having a lot of the same arguments in 1983. It's really not all that different. People have been lying in their TV ads just as much as they may now do so on Facebook. Obviously, there's complexity of the scale and whatnot that can exist in in digital advertising now that wasn't necessarily there with TV then, but you know, it was certainly very popular and seen by lots of people as well. I'll just say the predictions he makes in the last chapter, half of them were not correct and the other half were pretty obvious. So I, I obviously he couldn't have predicted digital advertising. We're here reading this book 35 years later. And of course, he's going to miss out on a lot of the huge changes that would happen with digital advertising. But even a lot of the predictions he made about traditional advertising did not come true. Things like billboards will be abolished was one of his predictions. Or candidates for political office will stop using dishonest advertising. Yeah, that didn't come true. So a lot of his predictions were not very good. In his defense, he said that he didn't really want to write the section and the publisher forced him to write it. So I guess that's a pretty good excuse. Okay, thinking about the book as a whole, who would you recommend this book to? Who should read it? I think it's pretty good for anyone who wants to sell something. Even though I don't agree with everything he said, and so he sometimes can contradict it himself, I think it's, it's like a fantastic introduction to anyone who wants to advertise something that they want to sell. Yeah, I agree. I think anyone who wants to sell something could definitely get a lot of benefit from this. I think that the core target of this is people in advertising specifically. And it is a little bit dated now, but I think it's probably still very interesting to see the history, to understand how this one, you know, incredible ad man built his business and all of the sort of learnings he'd taken over those years. But yeah, I would certainly recommend it to, you know, anyone trying to to sell their business or or planning on buying ads or working in advertising. He does there is even a chapter we didn't really talk about it about just how do you get a job in advertising. And I personally think that like David said, it's really great for people who work in the industry. My guess, of course, I don't work in the industry, would be that most people in the industry would still find a lot of what he says relevant. I think if you just have a business that needs to advertise, which is most businesses, you could read a few of the chapters from this book, probably skipping about half of them, and get a lot of value. Specifically, if let's say you need to make a print advertisement, reading just that print advertising chapter would probably give you 80% of the value that you would get from reading the whole book. Um, if that's what your main focus is. So I, I think this is a book that can really be picked up and used in piecemeal by people for specific circumstances. It's also just like a really awesome looking book, like I said earlier. Did you guys actually like it? I know, I think we all agree that it's useful, but did you like it for the book club? Yeah, I liked it. I, I thought he was a good writer. I thought it was interesting. I thought the ads were were pretty. I thought he did a good job actually with the bad negative ads to show the problems that people would have to. So yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. And I think that thing about the layout is so important, right? If this guy is supposed to be an authority on advertising, you're going to trust his advice. He better put together a really good book in terms of what it looks like. And he better put together some good writing because he was a copywriter. So if he spent all of his, basically it's a writing career. If you're a copywriter, you're a professional writer. So if he was such a successful copywriter, he should be a good writer in general, I would think, and, and be able to write a good book. And I think he did. Okay, what book are we going to do next month? Molson, I think this is your pick. So do you want to tell us about it? All right. I really like this book. It's awesome. It's called Setting the Table. It's by Danny Meyer. And it kind of teaches you, well, one, it tells the story of how this guy became this fantastic restaurateur, starting from uh, opening a bunch of really successful, and you know, I've been to those restaurants, they're, they're delicious, restaurants in, in New York City to having his chain called Shake Shack and doing a whole bunch of cool stuff like that. It tells that story. And also, kind of more importantly, in terms of value, it teaches you how to connect emotionally uh, with your employees and with the people you manage, or as he puts it, I think leads. Uh, He puts it as leading as opposed to managing people. It's a perfect complement to high output management, which teaches you how to kind of like maximize the output of your people without thinking of them as people. So really like this book, it added a tremendous amount to my ability as a manager, which is still probably pretty bad. Okay, great. Look forward to reading it. So is there anything that either of you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with both of you? 
I'm uh, at David G. Short on Twitter, and that's really it. We have too many brain flakes <laughs> at the Amazon warehouses right now. This is like the world's worst advertisement. We have too many. So if you could just buy some from Amazon and just take some of the pressure off our uh, storage fees at Amazon, that'd be greatly appreciated. And also, it's a fantastic toy that helps uh, kids, you know, build hand-eye dexterity and also like build their spatial mind. And kids sincerely love it. And if you're a parent, it like lets you just like go do other things while your kid just silently does something else that isn't looking at a screen. And when you step on it, doesn't it hurt your feet as much as Legos, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be the headline for our print ad. What ages are brain flakes appropriate for and how much do they cost? Uh, they they are appropriate for uh, ages five and up, but I've seen kids as young as three do do it really well. And I think like, I don't know, I, adults like them too. We, we were playing with them at Thanksgiving. So one of my friends bought them and we built all these cool structures. Uh, but mostly probably like five to like 11 or 12. Uh, how much do they cost? Uh, I am embarrassed to say that right now they are $14 and instead of $15 because we got to clear that stock at Amazon. Okay, I'm going to check them out. We got to push out this uh, podcast before Christmas hits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right. And you can find me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck. It's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I was recently on the podcast called The Local Maximum, which I think is actually a pretty cool podcast in general. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice. We really appreciate it. It really helps with our popularity, whether that's iTunes, Overcast, Spotify. Make sure to give us a nice rating and give us a review. And we look forward to seeing you next month.